If you have your Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 8. Revelation chapter 8. We're going to walk through this whole chapter. I thought we might look at both chapters 8 and 9 and then, well, might have been just a bit ambitious. So we'll look at just chapter 8. But they they go so well together, they are they really not able to be disjointed. And so this will set the foundation for what we'll talk about next week in chapter 9 as we talk about the 5th and 6th trumpets. But tonight we want to look at Revelation 8 and the sounding of the first four trumpet judgments. Chapter 6 ended with the breaking of the 6th seal in which we were thrown to the end of days and witnessed the outpouring of God's righteous wrath and saw the earth dwellers run for cover as they asked, the day of the wrath of the Lamb has come and who can stand? Chapter 7 sought to answer that question by describing a twofold vision that we looked at last week. One part of that twofold vision was of the angel of the Lord sealing the servants of God which were described as the 12 tribes of Israel. And the second part of that vision was of a multitude of every nation, tribe, and tongue, so great that no man could number. As you remember, I'm convinced that what John heard, the numbering of the tribes of Israel, 144,000, and what John saw, the unnumbered multitude of the nations, was in fact one and the same. And so I concluded that the way one can stand, one can endure on the day of the wrath of the Lamb is to be numbered among the unnumbered people of God by faith. Incidentally, I was sharing this with the staff yesterday because they all have their own places of ministry on Wednesday evenings. And so I was talking to them about the comfort that I draw from Revelation chapter 7 and the fact that Even as the great multitude is unnumbered, God numbers his servants. And we have this assurance that by faith, God knows us and God has accounted a place for us and God has sealed us so that he doesn't lose us. This gives me great comfort and assurance of my own faith and my own place in the kingdom of God, in his presence forever. But it's also a call to be faithful in my own shepherding to see that God Almighty cares so much about his people that he numbers them and ensures that they both have a place and that they do not lose that place, that's a call to me to care well for his people, to give such attention, such detail in my work. It's one of the things that we've been looking at as a staff team in the last few months, and we're developing a plan now for how to provide better congregational care How to ensure that not only are those who are present with us or cared well for, but that we we have a plan for graciously drafting back those who have walked away so that they find their place back among us and know the care of our faith family. I want you to pray for us in this. I want you to pray that God would give us a spirit of gentleness, according to Galatians 6, 1 and 2, and that God would give us wisdom and creativity And that God would give us connection with people. Because you can imagine with a whole staff that has changed, with one exception in the last two years, there are a lot of people on the role of Elkdale who we don't know. And so we need connection with people. We want to shepherd well in the pattern of our God. Having received a word of assurance and comfort, we now return in chapter 8 to the scroll of the end of human history. And finally, we learn its contents with the breaking of the seventh seal. We talked about this before, but in case you missed it, the pattern of introducing an interlude between the sixth and seventh seals and the sixth and seventh trumpets, which focuses on providing assurance and comfort to the people of God, coupled with the increasing percentage of destruction in the seal judgments, we see a fourth of the earth destroyed, the people of earth destroyed, and in the trumpet judgments, we'll see a third of the earth affected by the judgment of the Lord. And then all of that coupled with the fact that the seventh seal is opened, yet there's nothing there, and the seventh trumpet is sounded, yet there's nothing there, except in the case of the seal, the seven trumpets, and in the case of the trumpet, the seven bowls. 
All of this leads us to conclude that that each set of judgments is contained within what came before it. So the seventh seal is broken, and what is found inside are the seven trumpets. And the seventh trumpet is blasted, and what comes forth are the seven bowls. In this way, the judgment is telescopic and progressive. We're narrowing in, we're zooming in, we're getting closer to the heart of things at the end of days. In Revelation chapter 8, what we find is the announcement of justice and judgment. The announcement of justice and judgment. At the end of the night, I'll tell you that it's a fine line between warning and wrath. And some of us know that by our own upbringing. We know what it's like to have a parent who is chastening us in a beautiful way, not overhanded or overbearing, but just doing the job that a faithful parent has to do. And we know what it is like to have heard the warnings and then to have crossed the line. It is that way with God. Only the things that are at stake are of much greater eternal significance. A fine line between wrath and warning. And in similar fashion, there is a fine line between justice and judgment. God's people cry out for justice. And in order to provide justice to his people, God must pour out wrath and judgment upon the world and the people of earth. Look with me at Revelation chapter 8, these first five verses. John says that when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. And then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Here in these first five verses of Revelation 8, we see pleading for and pouring out justice. The saints have been pleading for justice, and now it is going to be given to them. Chapter 8 begins with the opening of the seventh seal. This is accompanied by silence in heaven for about half an hour, John says. The silence is not what is contained within the seventh seal, but a response to the breaking of the seventh seal and the wrath that is revealed within. There's no turning back now. It's sort of it's sort of like an iPhone. Now I know some of you said that's the dumbest thing I have ever heard. But I want you to think if you've ever had an iPhone, you think about how Apple packages that phone. Everywhere you turn, there's a another thing that you must unwrap. There's another sliver, there's another piece, there's one more part of something that must be unwrapped until you get to what is contained within. And you can unwrap the outer cellophane and you can release the inside wrappings, but until you get down to the phone itself and take away that nice plastic shield that they put over the face of the phone, you've not really gotten to the heart of things. John has been witnessing the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, taking open seven seals We've been waiting for him to get to the heart of things. We've seen all sorts of things about the ordinary course of human history, about the trouble that that earth dwellers go through, about the difficulty of living in a world broken by sin, but we still haven't gotten to the heart of things yet. But now with the opening of the seventh seal, oh, we've come to the matter at hand. Because the matter at hand contains a story of woe and wrath and judgment, There's a necessity for silence. It's right and good that all those who dwell in heaven should come to a halt, should let the weight of this sit upon them. 
This is not something to glory in. It's not something to be joyful about. It's not something that we should rejoice over. This is the day of the wrath of the Lamb. This is the judgment of sinners and the condemnation of the unrighteous. It's the destruction of those who were created in the image of the Holy One because they lived in rebellion against Him. It demands silence, reverence, pause. John is about to know everything that is contained within the scroll the ramping up of wickedness, the vile systems of evil that will abound, and the righteous frown of God that will loom over a world in rebellion against him. So before these things are explored, it's good to feel the weight of them. George Eldon Ladd writes that the silence represents an attitude of trembling suspense on the part of the heavenly host in view of the judgments of God which are about to fall upon the earth. It is the silence of dreadful anticipation of the events that are about to ensue now that the time of the end has come. My seminary professor, Dr. Bill Cook, also noted that the silence is a reminder that nothing happens without God's authority. Nothing in human history progresses until God is ready for it to do so. And so there's silence here to remind us that it is God who is in control of the story of mankind. John says that he saw the seven angels who stand before God. In the following verses, we find that these angels are responsible for sounding the seven trumpets that bring harm upon the earth and those who dwell therein. So we might have expected to... See the four angels that were discussed in chapter 7 in verse 1. You remember there that John talked about these angels who had authority to bring harm upon the earth. And they were paused by an angel who had the authority to seal the servants of God. So why seven angels now and four angels before? Well, it shouldn't be seen as a contradiction. Instead, it's just explained by the fluid nature of apocalyptic language. Sometimes the symbols are consistent, but sometimes they're not. That's the nature of the writing. It's perfectly in keeping with other examples of apocalyptic work from the period. And so here, in this moment, the symbol shifts to seven angels who will sound the destruction that is coming upon the world. These seven angels may have a connection to the seven archangels of Jewish apocalyptic literature. We talked about in the beginning of our study several months ago that in the time of the Revelation, when this is written, uh, this is not coming out of, out of the blue. It's inspired the Holy Spirit. It's given by the, by the will of God himself, and yet it comes through a human instrument, and it comes through a, a genre, a category of writing that was known to the people of the first century. In the intervening period between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, we have what's called the intertestamental period between the Testaments. It's a period of about 400 years from the ending of Malachi to the, to the writing of Matthew, history that's not given uh, written record in the canon of Scripture. But there were writings given by, by Jewish people in the time period, not inspired of the Spirit, but, but writings nonetheless trying to describe fanciful and far-fetched things, things that pertain to the end of days. There, were all, there was all sorts of apocalyptic, apocryphal writing in the intertestamental period. And in several of those writings, we have seven angels appearing. In the time of the second, maybe third century B.C., in the middle of this intertestamental period, the theologian Robert Mounts notes that there was a book called Tobit. And in this apocryphal book, the archangel Raphael identifies himself to Tobit, who's a Jewish man from Nineveh, as one of the seven holy angels who present the prayers of the saints and enter into the presence of the glory of the Holy One. Mounts goes on to write about First Enoch and that in this apocryphal, apocalyptic work, the names of seven archangels are listed as Uriel, Raphael, Raguel, Michael, Serakel, Gabriel, and Ramil. 
still in the angels of the presence are mentioned repeatedly in the book of Jubilees. All sorts of writing from this time period that talks about these angelic beings that have have a role in the presence of the Lord and presenting the prayers of the saints to him. Maybe that's in the background of what John is writing. Whether these seven angels are a reference to the apocryphal angels of the intertestamental period or not, it does seem clear that their work of sounding the alarm via their trumpet blast is a reference to the prophet Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 1 through 6, you remember that the word of the Lord comes through the prophet Ezekiel to declare that warning is needed when impending judgment is coming. In fact, for the man, the 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 one set aside as a watchman on the wall, for him to fail to warn God's people of judgment, of, of looming wrath, is to bring bloodshed upon his own hands to be responsible for the destruction of the people of God. We read there in Ezekiel 33 that if the watchman sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning and the sound and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. But if he, he had heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning, his blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet so that the people are not warned and the sword comes and takes any one of them, that person is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. These these uses of trumpets as a warning device, as as a sounding of the alarm, goes back to Ezekiel, and that's surely what's in view in Revelation 8. The trumpets that these angels possess are used to sound alarm, to give warning, not only of judgment that is coming to condemn, but also of judgment that is coming to correct. As we will see in the sounding of the fifth and sixth trumpets, there is a desire in the heart of God to redeem people for his own possession. And that desire persists even as harm comes upon the earth. This staid, partial judgment of the earth dwellers carries the intent of turning those who remain to the right. But we will see that they will not be turned. They will remain in their rebellion. Trumpets were used in the Old Testament to gather God's people together, Exodus 19 and 13, to mark sacred occasions, Leviticus 25 and 9, to sound the alarm in time of war, Numbers 10 verse 9, and to anoint kings, 1 Kings 1, 34. The prophet Zephaniah warned of of the impending day of the Lord and the mark of that day by the blast of a trumpet. So it's not just that the trumpets are preparing us for judgment or difficulty, but they're preparing us for eschatological judgment, eschatological difficulty, the, the kind of difficulty that comes at the end of days, the eschaton, the kind of judgment that comes on the great day of the Lord. Zephaniah wrote in chapter 1, verses 14 to 16, that the great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, A day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. This is how the trumpets in the Revelation should be understood. As sounding an alarm, announcing the great day of the Lord, warning of the day of the wrath of the Lamb. John wants us to know that we're coming to the end of days. He says that another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. Now, I don't know how many of you Baptists are familiar with the concept of a censer. Some of us who grew up in other denominations may be more familiar with the concept. Or if you've ever been to quite the Christmas presentation, then you may have seen uh, incense being swung by the wise men as they came to present frankincense to the Christ child. A censer is a vessel that's used for burning incense before the Lord. 
In our day, in, in churches that are highly liturgical and have a concept of the priesthood, um, usually you'll see a censer as a, a golden or brass dish where there's a lower chamber with coals that are set ablaze, and then an upper chamber where the incense is put and the flame catches to the incense and causes them to burn and it brings that sweet aroma of of the incense wafting up and usually the censer is held on a chain so that it can be swung throughout the uh, throughout the altar area in the sanctuary in the scriptures the censer is Probably not that complicated, maybe more of just a dish, maybe more of just a tray. In fact, uh, that's what it's often translated as in the Old Testament. It's, it's sometimes called a fire tray. But it's a tray that's set aside for this particular use. Incense was first used in the tabernacle. We read about that in Exodus chapter 25 and verse 6. It was offered up on the altar of incense. Read about that in Exodus 30 and verse 1. And if you continue to read throughout Exodus chapter 30, you see that there's an altar of incense that is set in the holy place before the veil that it goes into the most holy place. And upon the altar of incense, morning and evening, the priest is to offer this incense up to the Lord. We read about the the composition of the incense in the Old Testament, it's comprised of equal parts of these sweet spices, uh, stacta, anica, galbanum, and frankincense. And they're blended with pure salt by the perfumer, and this particular blend is holy unto the Lord. In fact, God says, you can't offer this for any other use. You can't make it on your own and use it in your house or use it for any other thing. It's holy unto me. And to use this, This particular blend of incense for any other purpose is to bring judgment upon yourself, the Lord says. John tells us that the angel who possessed the censer was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. So the picture here is like that of burning incense ever offered before the presence of the Lord, rising as a sweet and pleasing aroma to him. So are the prayers of the saints sweet and pleasing to the Lord as they rise before him. Most theologians would say that there's pictured here in Revelation 8 the integration of incense with the prayers of the saints. But I think Robert Mounts is correct here when he says actually what John means to say is that the incense is the prayers or the prayers are the incense. That in this heavenly setting, in this presence of the Lord, what is rising up before him at the hand of this angelic being are the prayers of his people. We have to be careful when we think about the work that this angel is doing. We don't want to call him a mediator because, of course, we know from 1 Timothy 2 and 5 that there is only one mediator between God and man, and it's the man, Jesus Christ. But in some way, this angel plays a role in conveying the prayers of God's people to him, much like the angels that are described in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, who are sent as ministering spirits into the world to serve those who are to inherit salvation. John says that the smoke of the incense, which with the prayers of the saints, rose before God from the hand of the angel. That's what the angel's doing. He's getting this up to the presence of God himself. Look at verse 3. And you note there that the angel is given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints. That matters. That's significant. These are not just the prayers of a particular group of God's people, only the prayers of the martyrs or only the prayers of those come through the great tribulation or some other group of God's people from some particular time or place, but they're the prayers of all the saints, of all the ages. And they're being presented before the presence of the Lord by his holy angelic messenger. And in so doing, God is aware of the pleadings for justice that have come to him from all time. I want you to think about that. Think about the scene that we saw in Revelation 6 and the breaking of the fifth seal. 
And there were saints that were crying out from beneath the altar of God who'd been slain on account of the word of God and their testimony of Jesus Christ. And they've been pleading with God for vindication, for justice. And God tells them to be to be at rest, to be clothed in these white robes and rest just a little longer. His day of judgment and justice will come. Think about how here all the prayers of all the saints being offered up to the God of heaven and earth. Thousands of years of God's people pleading for justice. Thousands of years of God's people asking for mercy. Thousands of years of God's people longing for His delivering power. Saints who've lived their whole lives in service to God, longing for Him to show His mighty power and deliver them from the day of trouble. And they have gone from first cry to final breath in pursuit of the delivering hand of God, and yet it has not yet come. Does that mean that those prayers are ignored? Here is a definite understanding that it does not. Those prayers offered have not been ignored by God Almighty. They just have not been answered yet. But they will be. One of the things that we must take away from this passage is a clear understanding that what we ask of God when we have no impediment between us and the Lord, what we ask of Him in accordance with His will, He hears and He answers in His time and in His way. The outpouring of judgment that takes place through the same means that the offering up of pleas for justice took place, it's the angel of, that brings the sense, the, the incense, the fire. John writes that the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. No longer is the censer filled with incense. Instead, now it's filled with fire alone, fire which is thrown upon the earth, bringing about the signs of judgment. The outpouring followed by the blasting of trumpets and the unveiling of scenes of judgment. It calls to mind that awesome presence of the Lord in that place called Sinai. You only go back and read Exodus 19, verses 16 to 20 to get a sense of the dramatic presence of the Holy One there. What accompanied the outpouring of God's presence? What accompanied the holy place where God was? Fire, thunder, lightning, power displayed in smoke, trembling all around. In much the same way, here is the presence of God. His power and His judgment poured out upon the earth in these awesome ways. John then begins to tell us about the trumpets. Four of them he writes about in in chapter 8. I want us to read about these together, beginning in verse 6. He says, Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them, The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. And a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. And the third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on the third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of that star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining." And likewise, a third of the night. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. At the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. The first trumpet that we read about in verses 6 and 7 
marks out the burning of the earth. The first trumpet, John writes, called forth hail and fire mixed with blood, which were thrown upon the earth. Recall the seventh plague that was placed upon the Egyptians, where a plague of hail was a plague of hail, by which the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire continually down upon the earth. It says in Exodus 9, 23-24, that the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail. It was very heavy hail, the word tells us, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt. Recall what the prophet Joel wrote about in Joel chapter 2, when he said that I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. These passages are in the background of this first trumpet blast as John sees an an end of days, an eschatological plague being poured out upon the earth. Quickly, we see that the nature of the judgment is increasing. Where the fourth seal revealed the destruction of a fourth of earth's population during the ordinary course of human events, as history approaches its consummation, a third of the earth is affected. That's what you'll see throughout chapter, chapter 8 in the blasting of the trumpets. Yet even as the destruction is increasing, it's still limited. God is limiting the judgment in order to provide warning and to give opportunity for the wicked to turn to him. These forces of destruction are sent to prod the hearts of those who are in rebellion. But as we'll see, the wicked will on the whole remain unconverted Hardened in their sin, they will continue to rebel until the great day of the Lord when it will be too late. The hail and fire that are poured out with blood, they, they should be seen not as, not as something other than what they are, a great natural disaster. This will be an act of God of epic proportion with a third of the earth with its trees and its green grass burned up. The second trumpet brings about a bloody sea and battered ships. It calls forth something like a great mountain burning with fire, John says. That this fiery mountain is thrown into the sea might elicit in us an image of a volcano or a meteor. Precisely what it was, we can't be sure, because John doesn't say it was a great mountain burning with fire. He says it was like, it was something like a mountain on fire. Remember that often through the, through the Revelation, John is using the best imagery he has to describe what he sees. Language, even to him, is limited. He's using what's, what's available to try to tell us what he saw So we can't be exactly sure of what he saw, but we do know its effect. Whatever this was, it brought about another plague upon the earth, this time causing the sea to be turned to blood. Of course, we recall the first plague that came upon the Egyptians where the Lord caused the Nile to be turned to blood. Exodus chapter 7, verses 20 to 21. I want you to begin noticing the impact to livelihood for those who dwell on the earth. He says that as the sea is turned to blood, it begins to impact everything to do with the sea. The seafood industry, for instance, comes to a halt. Now, some of us, that doesn't affect uh, because we are focused on chicken and pork and beef. But I'm just telling you, if you're with me and you're in the seafood camp, we're in trouble when this day comes. Because John tells us that a third of the sea is impacted and he also says that a third of the ships are destroyed. Everything about the seafood industry comes to a halt. The supply chain, we've heard, listen, before 2020, I bet you'd never heard of supply chain unless you were a part of it. But there's not one of us who's not heard of it now, right? We've all heard about the supply chain. I read this differently now than I might have read it before. Because you realize that the world in which we live as time has marched on is so interconnected, dependent upon each other, and for there to be such widespread destruction would bring a global economy almost to a halt. 
A third of the sea turned to blood. A third of the ships destroyed. Seafood industry destroyed. But not just that. I thought about this. It also means that all of the freight, all the cargo that's transported by sea, it gets interrupted too. With widespread destruction to the land and the sea, it's not difficult for us to imagine how hard life might become as the supply chain is broken, if not destroyed. The third trumpet brings about bitter water and broken lives. It says there in verse 10 that a third trumpet was blasted and it called forth a great star that fell from heaven. The star is ablaze like a torch, John tells us, and it has a name, Wormwood. When we go through the Old Testament, we look for this concept of Wormwood, we find that it is consistently pictured as a source of bitterness. Not poison, but bitterness. Proverbs 5 and 4, Lamentations 3 and 15, Amos 6 and 12. The waters impacted by the falling of this wormwood, this great fiery star, such that those who drink the water come to their end, they die. We may not be exactly sure of how this bitter destruction comes, but we do understand that it brings about a real impact to humanity. There's contamination all around to their drinking water. God's people have faced bitter waters before. You remember the story in Exodus 15, 22 to 26, of how the people of God coming out of the land of Egypt were coming to Merah, and as they got there to Mara, Mara, however you say it, as they got there, they found that the water could not be drunk because it was bitter. And so the Lord provided for them and caused the water to be made sweet. At Mara, God sweetened the water for his people. But as the end of days approaches, the people of earth will face waters that are increasingly bitter and destructive. And so you feel the weight of growing despair A third of the earth destroyed by fire. A third of the trees burned up. The oxygen supply is being impacted. The clean air is is becoming a problem as that happens. You pull out your iPhone and you look at the air quality and it's not good anymore. A third of the sea is destroyed by blood as it's become contaminated. A third of the ships have been destroyed. And so all of the shipping industry has been interrupted. A third of the water is contaminated, causing death at every turn for the lack of clean drinking water. The world is brimming with chaos, with hurt, with anger, with want, with need, with despair. And then a fourth trumpet blasts. And as if life wasn't dark enough, now a symbol of darkness comes as the light of both day and night is diminished. John tells us that a fourth angel blew his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of their light might be darkened and a third of the day might be kept from shining and likewise a third of the night. And then I looked And I heard an angel crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Like the Egyptians in the time of the Exodus, the earth dwellers in the time of the apocalypse at the end of days will face plagues that are increasingly harsh and destructive. The fourth trumpet recalls the ninth plague that was thrust upon Egypt that of darkness. It summons an attack on light. The sun was struck and a third of the sun was darkened. And because a third of the sun was darkened, that which reflects the sun is darkened as well, the moon. And lest it should be only those major lights in the heavens, the stars are struck as well. The heavens were dimmed by a third of blanketed in darkness. The light of day was prevented from shining as well as the light of night, John says. Darkness is both a sign, a sign of difficulty and a sign of demonic activity, but it's also a sign in prophetic literature of the coming day of the Lord. 
You heard Zephaniah talk about that in Zephaniah 1, 14 to 16, as he talked about the darkness that would accompany the great day of the Lord. The prophet Joel writes about that in Joel chapter 2 when he says, Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains, a great and powerful people their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through all the years of the generations. Amos also talks about this in Amos 5, 18 to 20. He says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into his house and leaned his hand against the wall, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? One way for us to think about the extended, think about this, are extended periods of darkness during the day. If a third of the light is affected, then think about eight hours of every 24 pitch black. No measure of light. Think about how that symbolizes what has been experienced in the destruction of earth and sea. Darkness is everywhere. It's beginning to rain upon the earth. People of earth are experiencing natural disasters at every turn. The air and water and food qualities are on a steep decline. Everywhere they turn is hardship and their hearts are despairing. And in the middle of it all, they are forced to dwell in darkness, to struggle without light, to face the world without the hope of God's illuminating power. Surely that's why in verse 13, an eagle soars above John with a warning. Woe. Not stop. Not keep this from going on. Not, not woe like we would call a mule to stand still. But woe, you need to know this is not good. There is destruction ahead. At the blast of the trumpets that are coming, there is real trouble for the people of earth. They ought to listen. They ought to take heed. They ought to turn to the Lord while he may be found. But they won't. I want you to see as we close this evening four lessons from these trumpet judgments. The first lesson is this, walk in step with God. Walk in step with God. Don't run ahead of him. Don't lag behind him. Recognize that God is the pace car. He is the speed of history's clock. He's the spring that keeps this world ticking at a perfect rate. Not one thing will happen until he's ready. So be careful. Do not think, do not think so foolishly as to think anyone could prophesy the day of the Lord as to its timing. We know that it's coming. We know that it's coming quickly, that it will be like thief in the night. We learn to read the signs of the times, and yet there is not one of us that knows the day or the hour, nor should we try. We should rest in God's control you know, there are all sorts of things speeding about the internet, most of them terrible and troubling. And just this week, I guess because I've been talking about Revelation and my phone has listened to me, and so the kind folks that made it in China have decided that I needed to watch a certain set of videos. That's sort of how things work, I'm told. I've been getting these videos of would-be preachers talking about the end of days, and how so many of them think that they have the timeline figured out. And it's so sickeningly sad that well-intentioned Christian people get caught up in thinking that they can predict the day of the Lord rather than resting in the control that God has over the world.
Walk in step with him. Number two, do not doubt that God hears your prayers. That's the second lesson from these trumpets. Do not doubt that God hears your prayers. A prayer unanswered is not necessarily a prayer unheard. We say not not necessarily because it is possible. It is possible for us to pray in a way that our prayers are not heard and that they are hindered. Remember that the Apostle Peter tells us that we ought to live rightly with our wives and men so that we do not impede our prayers. Isaiah talks about the fact that our sin life can be an impediment, a hindrance to our prayers. So we should understand that there are things that can trouble our prayer life and keep us from having communion with the Lord. But just because a prayer is an answer doesn't mean that it's unheard. God hears the pleas of his saints for justice And in his time, he will vindicate them as he fulfills his redemptive mission and judges the enemies of his people. Number three, as I said earlier, the line between warning and wrath is fine. So don't cross it. When you sense God's warning, heed the call. Turn to him. Repent and believe the gospel. Seek him while he may be found, because the day of his wrath will come. Then number four, prepare, but don't panic. Prepare, but don't panic. Listen, you have lived long enough to know that there are troubles coming in this life that you cannot prepare yourself against. You can eat as carefully as possible and work out as regularly as possible and still be diagnosed with a disease that takes your life. And you can save all the money that could possibly be made in the world through ordinary means, legal means, and still come to some sort of disaster that brings financial ruin. It's possible. It's possible that your earthly life could be darkened and dimmed by real trouble that you couldn't possibly have prepared yourself against. So prepare, but don't panic. That's increasingly true as we get toward the end of days. Life is going to get awfully difficult as the world gets closer to the day of the Lord. These days are going to be troubled and full of turmoil. And as God pours out judgment upon the world in increasing measure as the darkness ramps up, everyone around us is going to turn this place upside down. There will be real panic. It's a good idea to stay level-headed when everyone else goes to pieces. And so we do this by holding fast to the Lord, trusting in His provision for our lives. One story and then a prayer. In about 1997, maybe 1998, my father became fairly concerned over what he thought was looming disaster, a little thing called Y2K. Some of you might be familiar. And he in his desire to care for his family well, and I'll put it that way, I think that was where he came from, in his desire to care well for us, he became obsessed. And so everything that we did for the succeeding two years was was bent on insulating us from looming destruction. Let's do all we can to be prepared. We were preppers before that was even a term. And then it all came and went. And we just kept living our lives. And I remember it was a while after that, after we'd eaten 5,000 cans of green beans and niblet corn, that Daddy finally humbled himself enough to look at us and say, the lesson I've learned is to trust the Lord. Do all you can to prepare within reason. But don't panic. Why do you not have to panic? 
because you're the people of God. You have been sealed by His Holy Spirit. You have been bathed and washed in His precious blood. You have been counted on in His presence. And so though the day of the wrath of the Lamb will come, and all the people of earth will ask, where's the hiding place? How can we endure? Who can stand? If you are His by faith in His blessed Son, you have no reason to panic. You have every reason to be at peace. To know God, whatever comes in this life, my eternal life is secure. It's hidden with you on high. And one day I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Father, we pray on this day that all the comfort and all the assurance that is ours in Jesus Christ would be ever clearer in our minds. That as we think about how dark the days will get as the day of the wrath of the Lamb approaches, we need not despair because we can trust you. But Lord, there are people who are despairing. There are people who need to panic. There are people who stand outside of Christ and they have no hope of cover. They have no source of protection. That day will come and the undiluted wrath of God will be poured out upon them. And for them there is no hope. And so while the days are still with us, while there is yet time, help us, God, to be faithful, to share the hope that is to be found in Jesus Christ, and to call men and women and boys and girls to put their own trust in Him, to heed the warnings. Lord, we pray for our unbelieving friends and our unbelieving family members that, Lord, they would listen to the warnings that you give in your mercy and that they would turn to you in trust, that they would not harden their hearts against you as the people of God did in the rebellion, but that they would turn to you and seek you and serve you and find security in you for all their days. We pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.